it's a great day to be able to be together, isn't it? The first day of the week, this second Sunday of the month of January, the second Sunday of the year 2016, and we're privileged on this first day of the week by the command of God to assemble. We certainly never wish to forsake that assembly because it is in this assembly that we, of course, do that which God has commanded. We lift high the character and the praise and the adoration due Him. It is good that we certainly are able to do that today. You may have noted in the reading a moment ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I hope you will keep, keep the Bible open to that location. We'll be looking at one of the aspects and characteristics found in that particular paragraph in just a moment. The devil's devices. You've already noticed that's the title of the lesson. You can see that on the wall to my left. But might we say, in light of that, here are some introductory matters that I hope may focus that discussion maybe in your mind a little bit more than it otherwise might be at this point. We each are so well apprised of the fact that in the Word of God, the devil as a character is mentioned so very often. I've just made a very quick observation that of those hundreds and hundreds of references, would you just note these three? The actual word devil occurs 117 times in some form. That actual word Satan occurs 55. The word Belial, some 17. And you and I know that there are a host of other references in which he's characterized by words different from them, such as enemy, such as prince of the power of the air. The point is, a lot more than those are the number of occurrences in which he's referenced. It would be an extreme danger to fail to understand that He does exist. I realize that it's so tempting to, in fact, if I can't see it, I just won't believe it. Thomas felt that way, didn't he, in John chapter 20? And so you and I physically, though we may never see the devil in the flesh, may we never forget He is extraordinarily active. He's real. You and I are going to appreciate, I hope today in our lesson, one of the aspects of that that's highlighted in the Word of God that maybe we hadn't understood as thoroughly as we will today. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the word devices is a very interesting word. And it's the very word that was read a moment ago in our hearing in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11. Would you go back and revisit it as we hear Paul again say, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I wonder what it means to say that the devil has devices. What does it mean to say that this particular word is utilized to characterize him? And could that by itself speak volumes about the nature of his work and the way in which he does it? Let's begin our lesson then like this. Satan's devices. I have devoted this first slide as a rehearsal, as a reminder, not only of the basic nature of this great enemy, but one of the interesting characteristics from this verse the devil is an aggressive being. The verse, no doubt, that's already leaped to your mind. Be sober, Paul said, or rather Peter said. Be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. May you and I never lose sight of the fact that the way that's presented, it begins in a very imperative, commanding fashion. Be sober, be vigilant. That isn't stated in such a way that it might be true. Now, why should you and I be sober and vigilant? What's the point? It takes a great deal of effort. It takes a great deal of conviction. 
the end of the verse tells us, you be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. He is on the prowl, he's on the hunt, and he's looking for you and me. That's why we have to be so sober and vigilant. Those words meaning alert, watchful, careful. We could slip up any time. It is with that in mind you might notice this additional description, which it seems is so very helpful and telling. In the last book in the Bible, Revelation, the twelfth chapter in fact, we find that on that occasion there's a tremendous dragon that's identified. Now we've already seen him earlier in that book, but although we suspected who he was, now the Holy Spirit leaves us no doubt. He says, and the dragon, which is the devil, that old serpent, it says he's deceiving the whole world. So we identify he's the one who, in fact, was present in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent. He's the one who deceives the whole world. Notice, we find in that instance, he is again described in a very aggressive way. The devil isn't sitting back waiting for you to come to him, nor me. He is looking for you and me. Not only that, look at the second point. We find in Matthew chapter 13 a very interesting parable. You remember it well. It's the parable of the tares of the field. There was a certain description in which Jesus on that occasion presented that a good man went out and sowed good seed. But under the darkness of night, an enemy came and sowed tares. Now, as you and I appreciate the presentation of the parable, we find, of course, later on, Jesus identified point by point everything in it. The field had a meaning, the enemy had a meaning, the tares had a meaning. May I ask, who was the one that sowed the tares? It was the tempter, it was the devil, it was the adversary. And so did you notice what he did? He did a harmful, hurtful, terrible thing. We know well what it's like to be a farmer in this part of the world. How would you feel? You invest a couple of hard days in the early spring getting the field ready and you plant some good seed. And a few weeks later when things come up, you suddenly find some terrible enemy had come under the darkness of night, plowed up half the field and sowed cockleburrs or sowed something else that's no good whatsoever. How would you feel? The God of heaven has, of course, prepared this earth, and He's founded a marvelous body known as the church, the kingdom of God. He intends for those in it to live wisely, Christianly. He intends them to live in a proper way. And after all, in that parable, you notice again, what happens then when bad seeds occur? The devil has sown them. God didn't seem, did not sow them. You'll notice furthermore, that brings us directly to the passage before us. We've already hinted then at these activities of the devil, but what about his devices? Would you note with me with care the word that Paul used? He again said, we are not ignorant of his devices. The word his is a preposition, or rather it's an adjective, a possessive adjective, and it identifies the devil. Consider with me the definition of this word devices. The Greek word that's there translated devices literally means purposes that are conceived by thinking. It has to do with a plot, a strategy. Or to say that differently, you and I notice then that the devil thinks. He strategizes. He plots. He doesn't just haphazardly come after you and me. He has a plan in mind. 
It may not reap benefits tomorrow. It may take a month, two months, a couple of years, but then He'll get you and me if we're not careful because He's planned ahead that far in advance. I'll allure him or her with this temptation, and I know it won't take root overnight, but give it a month. Give it a year. Give it a little time. Have you and I ever thought about the fact the devil thinks and purposes and plans ahead like that? Paul said that he does. You and I then give thought to that reality through the rest of the lesson this morning. What might we say about the devices that the, that the devil does employ? Well, as we develop that maybe more thoroughly, we mentioned it a moment ago, but think immediately about that scene in the Garden of Eden. God had presented to Adam and Eve the commandment, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. From the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Now that commandment was thoroughly understood. Both of them knew it well. But as chapter 3 opens, verse number 1, it says, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. What does it mean to say that he's subtle? That particular word in the original Hebrew, it carries the following definitions. It means crafty. That's interesting. He's crafty. He tried to trick Eve. He tried to present to her what was not the truth. His goal was to deceive her, and he did it. Crafty, subtle, clever. Not only that, you'll notice that you and I today appreciate this very well. Think about this attribute of the devil. He's not able to tempt everybody exactly the same way. We have this statement in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now listen to verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Did you note the way that lust was identified? His own lust. His is a possessive adjective. Own is an adjective identifying the, the, the noun lust. So I have my lust and you have yours. And so the devil apparently plots and strategizes to attack me differently than he will you. Maybe what is a temptation to do bad for you wouldn't be such a one for me. But maybe what is a temptation for me wouldn't particularly be one for you. No wonder he has devices. There are well over 7 billion people on this earth. Well over 7 billion. The devil knows every one of us and what it is. It's our weaknesses. Now of that number, he already has the vast majority. But what about the Christians? What about those that are the professed, who have professed allegiance to God, those who are the directed ones who've been immersed for the remission of their sins? They're members of the kingdom. We're the ones in His sights. And He's trying to get every one of us. And He finds what your weakness is in mine. He strategizes and plots to get you and me. He has devices. These devices, as you'll notice at the bottom, leads us right back to the lesson text. Paul said something else about it. He said, we are not ignorant of his devices. To be ignorant, I've helped us by defining, that word ignorant carries with the thought of being unaware. It carries the thought of not understanding. 
Paul says we are not of that category. We can't claim that we don't understand. We can't claim to not be aware of. The Word of God tells us exactly how the devil operates. It tells us enough information such that we can be not ignorant of it and we can be prepared for it. I hope we'll develop that more thoroughly as we proceed from here on in the lesson. As you come to the bottom, at this point, perhaps we'd be quick to say there would be a whole host of categories that you could use to identify the devil's devices. In fact, a series of lessons that extend well beyond the end of this year could be developed, no doubt. You can think of some of them with me. One is discouragement. The devil comes to you and me and perhaps circumstances in life become such that I just get wearied beneath the load I carry and under the discouragement, my faith falters. Some people, of course, suffer it so. Another one he uses is intimidation. Maybe you have some friends or acquaintances or cohorts and they start exerting a great deal of influence and pressure and they even make powerful, logical-sounding demands. If we're not careful, your faith or mind buckles beneath the intimidation. Sometimes the devil uses carelessness, sometimes laziness, sometimes disinterest, and on and on the list may go. I thought I would perhaps use the Word of God to help us describe today some huge categories. And a lot of these others will simply fit in these in one place or another. Let's look at the first one. A device of the devil. Could I ask you to consider the simple consideration of a disobedient spirit? What do we mean by this idea? May I suggest to you this is the very idea of the lesson text in 2 Corinthians 2. How do we know that? Here's the idea. In the church at Corinth, we will remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or rather chapter 5, that there was sin in the camp. There was a man living in adultery. He was living in fornication. And as he was doing so, the church had done nothing about it. In fact, their attitude had been a very poor one. And Paul, in fact, wrote to the emerging and admonishing them that out of love for that one, you have to do this. And they did it. They disfellowshipped him. Thanks be unto God, we have the aftermath of it. After the Corinth withdrew its fellowship from this sinful individual, what happened? 2 Corinthians 2 gives us the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. We learned that man appreciated the urgency and the finality of the matter, and he repented. He gave up that sinful lifestyle. Isn't that great news? The whole purpose of carrying out that disfellowshipping was hopefully that that would happen, and it did. He recognized the sinful way of it. He repented of it. Notice now in verses 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians 2, Paul now wrote to the church in Corinth and gave them some continuing instruction. This gentleman has repented. How should the church react toward him? Did they continue to hold out the issue concerning the disfellowship? Did they hold it as a matter of guilt over his head? Paul said, no. You've got to forgive him. He's asked you to forgive him, and now, in the sense he's repented of this, you can't continue to hold this against him, for God hasn't. Not only that, you have to love him. You need to love him. 
today the Pippin Church. Any other faithful church would feel the same. When you and I noted in recent weeks, back in the late part of last fall, we looked at what that would involve. And when an individual repents, God with open arms is more than ready to accept that person back. And loving brothers and sisters in Christ do the same. But continue in the lesson text. The church in Corinth apparently had a different feeling. This man had caused problems in the church. Well, maybe he doesn't deserve to come back. Maybe he has in his heart the fact that I'm just going to hold this against him a while. Maybe I will maintain some grudges. Paul said, as loving brothers, you can't do that. He has repented. God has forgiven him, and you need to forgive him. Now notice verse 9, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. There's that word again, obedient. The church in Corinth had a decision to make. Are we going to forgive him and extend again the beautiful element of Christian fellowship, or are we going to choose to disobey God and not do that? The characteristic of obedience. Notice again, that's the very context in which we read now verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Surely none of us want the devil to get an advantage of us. We don't want him to have the upper hand, if you please. We don't want him to occupy the position to which you and I must look. We don't want him as our leader. It's in that way, Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. One of the things then that Satan was attempting to do to the church in Corinth was to maintain in them a disobedient spirit. Let's develop that with the bottom of this slide. That's one of the tactics then that, the, that Satan uses. He simply maintains or encourages in the heart of a person a spirit of disobedience. In other words, we might say it like this. This person, I know what the Bible says, but I'm just not going to do it. I know that that's what the Bible teaches, but for this reason or that, I'm just not going to do it. And it doesn't matter what the supposed reason is. It's a spirit of disobedience. And Paul said, Satan's got an advantage of you if you fall prey to that. May we appreciate well that what Paul wrote to them is so very needful for you and me, even personally today. Never should we be ignorant of his devices. Never should we thus fall prey to a disobedient spirit. At the bottom, might I ask you to consider that there are several places in which something like this is mentioned in the Word of God. Maybe we can start in Ephesians 2 verse 2. On that occasion, we find the description of the workings of the prince of the power of the air. Now, that of course is this, our enemy, that's the devil. But it says there's a spirit of disobedience in them that follow him. In that telling, there again is this reference to a spirit of disobedience, a simple fact of saying, I'm not going to do what God says. I can't think of a more dangerous position in which to be than that. To know full well what the Bible teaches, but to be so prideful, so arrogant, as to say, I'm just not going to do it. Now, you and I know well in our families that a father shouldn't tolerate that. A child should learn from an early age to respect dad and mom. And you never, ever say, I'm not going to do it. 
I suspect many a belt and many a peach tree limb has been used to help teach a vital lesson that that's not what you say to dad or mom. The children need to learn you don't say that. And how much greater is our Heavenly Father? How much more mighty is He? And how much firmer is His just judgment? And yet the spirit of disobedience can be alive and well if we aren't careful because the devil encourages it. Look at these examples. Sad to say that we know full well that those who fall in this consideration will receive the wrath of God. And the Bible directly tells us that. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6, Colossians 3 verse 6 say that the wrath of God is poured out on the children of disobedience. Look at these names. In 1 Timothy 1 verses 19 and 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander are mentioned. Well, what's so valuable about them? Paul says, I have turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. They've made shipwreck of their faith. Here individuals. Notice they directly disobeyed. They'd been preached to and they'd been encouraged and they had been admonished, but they simply chose to blaspheme and live that way. And Paul said, I've turned them over to the devil. The children of disobedience, they were. How sad it is to consider the final lot of Hymenaeus and Alexander. I hope they came to their senses, don't you? We have no later record of it in the Bible. We can pray that finally they were reached by the truth of God. Look at another example in 2 Timothy 4.13. There we have Alexander the coppersmith. He did much harm to the gospel preaching through Paul. He, in fact, stirred up a great deal of opposition to the nature of the gospel, to the preaching of Paul. Paul says, I preached to him and encouraged him, but he didn't listen. Spirit of disobedience alive and well in Alexander the coppersmith. As you close that particular slide with me, what does that say about each and every one of us? The Word of God has God's commandments contained in it. There may be many times that someone might say, oh, I don't particularly like that because that means I've got to change. Friend, if we love the Lord, if we want to go to heaven, we'll change because we'll be maintaining a spirit of disobedience when we say, well, I just don't think I'm going to do it. I just believe I'm going to take my chances as it is. Friend, there is no chance. God is always right. Genesis 16, 13 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a tragedy to consider how arrogant it is for someone to maintain in them a willful spirit of disobedience, and yet the devil is prompting it. That's one of his devices. We're admonished, aren't we, to be humble. And the way that word is used in James 4 verse 6 and also verse 10 is that we would appreciate that in the book of God we should humbly submit to what God says. Hadn't that been the characteristic of faith all throughout the Word of God? Noah built an ark. Why? I've never seen it rain. It doesn't matter that you had not seen it rain. I said to do it. And Noah did it. Genesis 6.22 And he pleased God. Hebrews 11 verse 7 Abraham, leave your homeland in Ur. Why? Because I said to. Where am I going? Don't you worry about it. I'll tell you when you get there. Doesn't that take faith? Neither of those characters, and yea, so many others, never exuded a spirit of disobedience. And oh, how wonderful it is to think of their example of faith. 
Would that be characteristic of you and me? May you and I never have a spirit of disobedience like that. But it seems as though there's another huge category the devil uses. It's this one. It's a spirit of indifference. A spirit of apathy, if you please. What do we mean by that? And again, many specifics might be fit underneath that particular topic. But why don't we begin like this? There are times when an individual, again, may well have some understanding of what the Scripture says or what the will of God is, but they may well justify their appreciation by saying it really doesn't matter. It really isn't that important. God isn't really interested in that fine detail, if you please. I've simply used the word indifference as a description, at least in approach to those specifics. Consider these. You probably could list with me hundreds, if not thousands, of immediate examples. How many times has an individual felt some un- unusual or abnormal chest pain, and maybe you just didn't think a whole lot about it? Two weeks later, you have a very debilitating heart attack. The signs were there. The implications were there. But I just didn't think anything of it. I was indifferent to it. That farmer, the tin starts to blow up on the roof of the barn, but he's somewhat indifferent to it. After a while, the wooden structure beneath is rotten and the barn has to be torn down. He was indifferent to the problems that arose, indifferent to the circumstances at hand. Isn't it true that same kind of thing can become characteristic of you and me? We are admonished to hold tightly to the commands of God. That doesn't mean loosely. It means to hold and grasp tightly. May I ask you to notice in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things. Hold to that which is good. Now the church in Thessalonica was told very clearly by order, you prove all things. In light of the Word of God, you test what you hear and what you see in light of what this says. And if what's preached and what's done and what is affirmed is in light of it, you grasp it tightly and you pursue it, you you encourage it. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The traditions of men, Paul said, you hold to them tightly. Now those traditions, let Paul identify them. He said the traditions you've heard of us. Faithful things in harmony with the Word of God, you cling to them. You hold to them tightly. Don't be indifferent toward them. Don't have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Surely, in light of that, you can see one more example that might even help us see here about the days of Noah. I used Noah as an example a moment ago. What about the people to whom he preached? Have you ever thought about it? There were probably at least several thousand people on earth at the time Noah was alive. The lifespans were long. We were, again, several generations removed from Adam and Eve. Think about it. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He warned them. He preached to them. He encouraged them. He told them what was coming. God has informed me there is a flood coming. How many of them responded positively? How many of them responded in faith. How many of them responded with any interest in what it was that Noah preached? 
None of them besides his family. I wonder, as you then contemplate it, what, what must some of their attitudes have been? I'm sure you and I can just easily visualize it. Here's a person who is perhaps wandering in the vicinity of the ark. After all, the ark was a gigantic structure. Maybe there's an individual who, and he begins to walk toward Noah. Why are you doing that? It's going to come a great flood. Let me tell you about the nature of what you need to do to come on board this ark. And the gentleman starts sniggering, laughing. Noah, you, we must be out of your mind. Nothing like what you've described is, has ever happened. They were indifferent, no doubt many of them, to what Noah said. They just simply didn't take it seriously. They were apathetic toward it. That just can't be right. Well, look at these things. As you and I close that slide, isn't that the very same principle that you and I seemingly see in so many different ways today? May I suggest to you that virtually every single facet and every single aspect of denominationalism has its heart, has the very seed of its occurrence right here. So many times we are told, it doesn't matter about this or about that. I've listed a few examples, and no doubt we're all so familiar with the consideration of baptism. How many in our world today, religious people, are saying it doesn't matter whether or not you're baptized? God doesn't care about that. Now, He does want you to be after you're saved. And many of them thus, in light of a discussion like that, will say, well, it doesn't really matter. Others, like Billy Graham, are quick to say, once you, in fact, accept Jesus into your heart, join whatever church you feel comfortable with. It doesn't matter. Really? Really? The devil's strongly at work in thoughts like that. Our Savior died to build one church. That's all He ever purchased. Matthew 16, 18. Acts 20, 28. There's only one body mentioned in Ephesians 4, verse 4. Those aren't the words of you or me. Those are God's words. And you and I can appreciate that in light of these things, it does matter. But oh, how successful the devil has been. Bringing a convincing spirit into some who think, well, it doesn't really matter. May you and I never be overcome and overwhelmed by that kind of thinking, but always have a spirit in which we so quickly open the blessed Word of God and allow God to dictate our thoughts and our appreciations. It really does matter. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, in that conversation with Nicodemus, didn't Jesus say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be born of water and the Spirit, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that sounds like an absolute ultimatum, doesn't it? Unless this happens, you cannot enter. And that was a reference to baptism. As far as that beautiful body of Christ, that Christ's blood purchased, nowhere in all the New Testament do you find references to multiplied bodies believing sundry and various different things. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I beseech you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there, there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verses like that allow no room for modern, indifferent denominationalism. Surely, in light of those things, many of an individual is going to leave this life 
and stand before God in judgment, having lived carelessly, thinking that it didn't matter about this or that or the other, when all the while God said that it does matter. In 1 John 2, verses 2 through 4, we're told on that occasion that if, if we don't keep His commandments, we're only deceiving ourselves. One last element of our lesson this morning about the devil's devices would be this one. One other ploy that he uses to such great advantage on occasion. A strategy, a device, a plot that he employs so very often has to do with our associations. The people with whom we associate can exert such a tremendous influence upon us. They can be a a part of what brings intimidation or what brings discouragement or what encourages slothfulness or any number of other things. Look at how you and I might think for a moment about Lot. I suppose we've each thought many times about Lot. What decision would you have made? What one would I have made? God had blessed Lot and Abraham so much so that their herdmen weren't able to get along. There just wasn't enough pasture land and other features to permit the cohabitation of all of it. And so Abraham said, let there not be any strife between us. You choose which direction you want to go, Lot, and I'll take whatever's left. Lot began to look around, and in the distance he saw the well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. Lush and green and rather picturesquely beautiful. He said, I'll take that one. I'll take that Jordan River Valley. Problem is, there was a city proverbially in the distance. It was Sodom. The text says Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. The decision he made at that moment would have consequences for he and his family I'm sure he never dreamed of. Consequences I've tried to ask you to think about like this. We know what kind of city Sodom was. Homosexuality was rampant. Fornication was rampant. Unthankfulness. Selfishness was rampant according to Ezekiel 16. Lots of things that were going on there and it wasn't a good place. Lot, do you want your wife and family to live here? He apparently did, or at least he was willing to tolerate it. What happened? We know well what happened. Ultimately, when the time came that Sodom was destroyed, how many were saved? In the final analysis, you could argue only one. Even Lot's daughters committed sexual sin with him. Even they, in fact, his own wife turned to a pillar of salt. Salt, Lot's own daughters, it seems, weren't excited about leaving the city. They were, in fact, brought out almost against their will. They loved Sodom. They apparently had an interest in Sodom. Look at what the associations had done. While Lot was living with Abraham and the group, nothing like that's mentioned. But after living near Sodom a while, look what happened to him. His righteous soul was vexed day by day, 2 Peter 2, verses 7 through 9. What about the associations you and I are making? Are you associating with people to encourage godliness or people who are hurting your godliness? Are you associating as much as possible with people who are godly and righteous and those that will assist you on your journey to heaven or those that are putting stumbling blocks before you? Sometimes in life we can't make all those choices. Maybe it's people at work. 
But when we have the choice, what choice are we making? Look what happened to Lot. He lost his wife. Look what happened to his daughters. And the children born to those two daughters were thorns in the side of Israel for centuries. I would suggest to you as we come close to the end of that slide, may we be careful about our friendships. Psalm 119 verse 63 says, I'm a companion of all them that love thy word. Who are your closest friends? Is it people who love the Lord like you do? Or is it people who don't? People maybe who have a spirit of disobedience and a spirit of indifference. Oh, we hope they'll change. and We hope that they'll repent. As we close this lesson today, the devil's devices. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? No wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Make no mistake about it. If you hang around long enough, that which is ungodly will start to rub off on you. That's just the way it works. This lesson's close challenges us with these three devil's devices. First, the spirit of disobedience. Don't let that dwell within you and me. Maintain a heart of tenderness, a heart of openness with regard to God's Word always. Secondly, a spirit of indifference in which you say, well, I know that's what it says, but I really don't think it matters that much. It does matter. If it's in the book of God, it matters eternally. Finally, be careful of your associates. Those that you choose to remain near so often, they will impact you. Make no mistake about it. Today, there might be someone in the audience who has fallen prey to the devil's devices. Maybe you've begun to allow a spirit of disobedience to dwell within you. Stop it today. Maybe you've begun to think on indifferent things. Stop that today too. Maybe you have chosen some friends that are not wise. And in your finer moments, you know it's not wise. Make sure to keep those friends at a proper distance. And if you've chosen them, sever those friendships if that's what's in order. Your eternal well-being is far more important than a few years of fleshly friendship on earth. As we close this lesson, if you need to respond to the gospel call and invitation, may you appreciate with me that the plan of salvation requires that an alien sinner believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you today with that, we'd be honored to do it. If you need to return to your first love, though, making confession of public sin, we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. But of course, you must repent and confess it. If either of these things would be the need of your heart today, don't delay. But why not come now while we stand and sing?